Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game is About Glory. I'm your host, Steph, and joining me are Gareth and Milo. Hello, chaps. Hello, Steph. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I think we all feel a bit like that in this crazy season, which is thundering on around us as we live and breathe. It is increasingly shaping up to be exactly what we thought as club football steamrolls its way through an unfeasible amount of matches before the uh, ill-timed Qatar World Cup in November. Uh, the body count is starting to pile up around the Prem, and we've been dealing with our own injuries and red lines, as you've all seen. Um, Decky and Richarlison remain unavailable. Decky might be out until after the World Cup. Uh, they're saying Richie's hopefully available for a few games before it starts. We'll see. Add the Achilles heel of Lucas's injury. I hope you see what I did there. Not quite reaching 100%. And now add Romero and Pierre-Emil Hoybier, who have crossed the red line. And it must be clear to you by now, if it wasn't already, that this is a chunky slog where getting across the line is going to be everything by the time the World Cup starts. And to that end, we're going to look chunky back at our slog. match against Newcastle earlier today. <laughs> Which was a chunky slog. <laughs> Chunky slog, I know. I took out the word funky because I thought it was sounding a little too cheerful. Chunky, funky Chunky, slug. Funky slog. That sounds like a chocolate bar. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It sounds like the sort of chocolate bar we all want to comfort eat tonight. But anyway, <laughs> so but we're going to touch base as well with the defeated Old Trafford against Man United earlier in the week. And doubtless, we will find ourselves previewing the next two games against Sporting Lisbon at home in the Champions League and Bournemouth away as a matter of consequence. Uh, but before that, chaps, there was the week that was. And... I'm going to hand this one over to you, Milo. You kick us off with the week that was this week, if you would. Last week at the Bell and Door, Sun Heung-min was ranked the 11th best player in the world in 21-22. Harry Kane was scandalously named the 21st best, and Hugo Lloris was named the 10th best keeper. 11-21-10, yeah. <laughs> That's your suitcase pass number, isn't it? You're, you're the code on your suitcase. <laughs> I think Kane at 21 is scandalous. Really do. Yeah. Gareth, it's a scandal, isn't it? I, I mean, the, the whole thing's an utter farce, isn't it? The Ballon d'Or, I'm not sure how much credibility oh, there is actually is love it. to it anyway. I wouldn't, <laughs> I've got far more of uh, more pressing matters to be concerned about, like why Spurs playing a blue kit at Old Trafford and um, to, to, to focus too much on the Ballon d'Or award. But no, I don't feel that there's 20 players in the world who are better than Harry Kane. Yeah, you know, we should. I'd love to know more about how this award gets put together. You're right, it is a load of cobblers. Name recognition. Actually, yeah, I'm with you. What's that? Name recognition. Yeah, I think you yeah. just think Rubbish. ourselves lucky that it wasn't Messi and Ronaldo at one and two again, which is probably which is probably where they started off. I like that. I think you're absolutely right. So, uh, but we're all agreed. What a load of cobblers. <laughs> Unless, of course, Harry Kane had won the Ballon d'Or, in which case it would possibly be the greatest measure of footballing talent ever. <laughs> Let's look at a positive, actually, because you know, Sonny at number 11 in the world, and I think that's probably doing him a disservice as well, considering how good he was last year. It's remarkable for a player who's you know, consistently overlooked when you look at kind of the names that are you know, floated as the best players in the world and what have you. It's really nice that he's got that recognition. He should be higher, but to have him on the list at all is really good. And um, yeah, crowns off what was a fantastic season for him. I like that. Yes. Ending on a positive with the Ballon d'Or. You're absolutely right, Milo. We should be grateful that Sonny is finally getting the acclaim that he deserves. Um, another great thing uh, that happened uh, this week, actually, it was on October 17th, 2002, that the Tottenham Tribute Trust was founded. Well, that was when the money started rolling in for them. 
thanks to a game against DC United, which saw the likes of Jurgen Klinsmann and David Ginola turn out a 1-1 draw. In case you didn't know, the Tottenham Tribute Trust, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary, mathematicians will have figured that out, helps people connected with Spurs who have fallen on hard times. You should look them up. Uh, beneficiaries have publicly included Neil McNabb, Tony Marchi and Roger Hoy, plus many, many more who prefer to remain anonymous. Um, it's a tremendous organisation. The club work very closely with them. There is going to be a lot more to say about them in the future, and hopefully we will be featuring them in an episode of The Game is About Glory in the not-too-distant future, as their story and mission is not only wonderful to hear, but it strikes at the heart of the very virtues that we all believe are so important in both our beloved club and life. Uh, one other thing, one of the trustees and also the uh, very, very well-loved and much-renowned uh, former statistician, former statistician, is that right? Am I saying this wrong? Statistician, like, tongue, tongue, tongue? isn't it? What is it again? Statistician. There we go. I can't say the word that re- refers to numbers. I don't know numbers very well, but Andy Porter knew all of them extremely well. He was a font of history and information for Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. And quite sadly, um, it has been eight years since Andy passed. And I just wanted to make a mention of Andy, who is much loved by the club and many around him and much missed. Uh, a really unique, uh, a really unique guy. Um, I think, you know, uh, Gareth, you probably met him several times. Am I right? Yeah, I, I had several interactions and email exchanges with him about fairly random items. And he was he was always one step ahead of me. Yeah, he was an incredible font of uh, and, and resource, uh, font of information and resource. So much missed and well worth mentioning. Um, once again, do look up the Tottenham Tribute Trust. They're on Twitter attribute trust or on facebook and their website tottenhamtt.com there we go tottenhamtt.com so i suspect that many of you are not regular readers of the irish independent unless of course you are listening to us from ireland in which case you may well have seen this uh what i believe to be sensational uh matt doherty interview uh, from a couple of days ago, um, he opened up in an unerringly honest interview, uh, speaking about the stresses and life-altering pressure of playing Premier League football and why he feels he let Jose Mourinho down. We're gonna, we're gonna, you know, read a few few quotes from this piece. It's a phenomenal piece, and and these quotes uh, are only half of it. Um, this is what he had to say that really caught our eye from the get-go. This is an incredible quote. Quote, being a footballer every day, I think has made me cold in certain aspects. In family life, I'm just emotionless at times. In football, you have to stay so level that I take that across into family life at times. That's not really a great thing. You know, when you're having bad times in the Premier League and the scrutiny is high, you literally don't want to go out. You are just miserable. And on Mourinho, he said, I let him down. People think that he was bad for me. But it was the other way around. He put a lot of faith in me and I just didn't really perform. I just didn't play well. I just didn't grasp it. I don't know. I just wasn't able to get going there at the start. The shape was obviously different, so from Wolves. The difference was that at Tottenham, they have so much ability going forward with the players they have that maybe I wasn't necessarily needed to play high and create stuff. So my main job was uh, maybe just to be a defender. But my game is about going forwards. To be fair to Jose, he tried to play me high. But it wasn't working for the team. We were leaving too much space. I just didn't perform for him. He's a great guy. I could sit here with him now and have dinner with him and have the best time ever. I spoke to him a few times about it, but I don't know what it was. It was a bit of regret that I wasn't able to perform like uh, how he saw me in his head. I mean, I think that's an extraordinary admission. I mean, rarely do you see any professional footballer take accountability like that. I mean, you know, 
good thumbs up for him. And it was interesting. He did also speak of the demands of being a wing back. And uh, yeah, let me just read this. I think it's, it's, it's fairly interesting. I seem to thrive a lot in the wing back position. I'm not all about burning past people. It's more about timing and using my brain to see spaces or gaps. So I think the shape of the team helps me to do what I do. You have to obviously be fit and be able to get up and down the line. You have to contribute offensively in terms of goals, assists and stuff like that, because that is the whole point of the position. Then you have to defend like at the back post. So it is a specialized position. I don't know how we stumbled upon it, but I guess as a defender who loves to attack, it is kind of perfect. Defensively, I'm more confident in that position because in my head, I know that if something happens and I'm out of the game, there is another center back already there. So you play with more courage because you know there is a bit more cover behind you. You should want that responsibility, and it's a big responsibility. To play for a club like Tottenham Hotspur should make you proud. Uh, He then goes on to say, you know, there's a proper inquest if we lose a game. And I realise I added the Hotspur after Tottenham. He didn't actually say Hotspur, but it was said with such gravitas. I just Tottenham Hotspur saying things. Anyway, look, it's a cracking read. Well done to reporter Gareth Maher for a great interview. And we heartily suggest you check it out. Well, we're here at the first of our uh, lookbacks this week. Uh, The game earlier today at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium against Newcastle United. It ended with our first defeat at home this season. by two goals to one. Chaps, let's kick it off as we always do uh, with that double header. What did you think of the team selection? How did we play overall? Um, team selection, I don't think any of us were expecting that Romero or Hoiberg were, were going to be out. And we both recognise that though they're both integral players within the within the system. Um, I think we all suspected that Emerson Royale would come back in after his three-game suspension, albeit I thought Doherty was probably one of the better of a Fairly bad bunch on on Wednesday. Um, setting you in on the left hand side, I was certainly calling for him to have played at Old Trafford on, on you know on, on Wednesday. So um, not too much to say about that. Um, Longley and Davis, I think, is a bit of a bit of a toss up. I think both of them have have qualities that they bring to the team. Um, so it was the surprise of, of Romero and Hoiberg being out really was the one and I think we were all a little bit concerned about that right hand side Skip coming back in or Hoiberg made sense to keep the 3-5-2 I guess there weren't really any other options if, if Lucas wasn't ready to, to start a game so I don't think there's anything particularly baffling about the about the 11 that started for the game I, th- I thought we were okay for half an hour I think we created the the, the better chances um, I felt that you know Pep, Pope made a couple of good saves in saying that there, we had a couple of shaky moments individual errors at the, at the back I think Dyer let one run under his his foot which is um, I, th- I think he's often the barometer of confidence in the in the team and if it's not quite working out for him, I do worry about the rest of the team. And then, really, the game changed on that on that incident after 30 minutes when when Newcastle scored. And unfortunately, Conte mentioned in his post match presser on Wednesday that he was a bit concerned about the team's mentality, and that really, really showed today because we looked like rabbits in the headlights for for 10 minutes after the first goal was conceded. And it's it's not the first time that it's happened. We don't seem to react well to um, perceived injustices that go against us. And by that point, it was then too late to, to really do anything about it in the second half. You know, we looked like the gopher that was in my dog's mouth at half time. actually, if I may add that analogy. To those who haven't seen it, I was sending our WhatsApp group pictures of my dog who had caught a gopher in our backyard at half time. Incredibly exciting for me. Sorry, Milo, I jumped in. Carry on, mate. <laughs> no, in terms of team selection, I agree with Gareth. I was kind of expecting Longley, 
Royale and Cesc to come in. You know, obviously uh, Skip and uh, and Sanchez coming in were were a surprise, and that right side of Sanchez and Royale is always always a concern, and it does mean that you know Dyer is kind of playing with one high, one hand tied behind his back because he's so reluctant to pass to Sanchez, and it it, it does kind of telegraph what he's going to do with the ball, and it makes it so easy for the for the opposition and Newcastle. Kind of made it. I think I agree with Gareth. And, you know, in terms of that first, you know, up until Newcastle scored, I thought we were in control of the game. It was, you know, it wasn't a great performance. It was kind of a, you know, seven out of ten. You know, we were controlling the game, getting chances, not maybe doing as much with them as we'd want, but we were in control of it. And Newcastle were sitting off us, which gave us space to play, which we like. Apart from when Sanchez got the ball, when kind of whoever was closest to him rushed towards him and tried to panic him into passing the ball. And that's become kind of standard for any team that plays against us now. When Sanchez is in the lineup, the manager just says if he gets, if, if the ball goes towards him, rush towards him and panic him. And unfortunately, I just think. I mean, it's so true. It, it's, it's cruel because I, I don't think he's a bad player. I just don't think he's a good fit for this team. No. And he's been found out, unfortunately, within. I mean, the horrible thing is, you know, I have this protective instinct, you know, for, for trying to defend sometimes the undefendable and I'm, I, I think you're absolutely right I, I'm hitting a point where it's really impossible to defend his inadequacies because it is really causing us problems and when you add you know another player who actually didn't I think play badly today Emerson Royale into the picture who also does come with his deficiencies and maybe he's not as trusted it, it doubles the problem really on that side doesn't it I, I was going to leap to the fence of Emerson Royale it's, it's a bad combination the two of them playing there in a system where you want to try and move the ball quickly between them I mean I, I do feel with Emerson Royale if ever Spurs don't win a game instantly it seems to be Agreed. it's because Emerson Royal can't cross it and I yes. actually thought he was he was quite good in the first half I thought he made Quite some agree. good bursting runs forward yes. into inside right even one fairly central position I couldn't see anything there's nothing tangible to me that said to me we lost that game or we played badly because of anything that Emerson Royale did I agree yeah. while we're talking about Emerson Royal and apologies Steph if you want to go through this game chronologically because we've just kind of screwed this up now no, I, thought you, I, th- I thought it was really interesting me. I thought it was really interesting <laughs> that he ended the game at right centre back uh, nominally I mean I think it was quite fluid by that time because we were chasing the game but I do wonder whether that is a signifier that Conte might have might agree with us on what we're saying about Sanchez and that he he was he wanted to have a look at Royal there it's been something that's been muted amongst fans uh, since Conte came in and I, I wonder whether if the footballing gods are smiling on us on uh, in the Champions League this week and we managed to get a home win against Sporting Lisbon and the and the Marseille games are dead rubber whether he whether he gets a run out at, at centre back again in that game or whether we see him against Forest in the in the League Cup later on next month because I think within a Conte system at least I think possibly Emerson Ryle might be a better right centre back than than Sanchez, although you know it's a big leap into the dark, and we, we'd have to see him there in a the game to see how he how he copes with it. I think they're two really good points. I mean, I think that what you said, Gareth, is absolutely right. And and just to clarify, when I was you know I wasn't saying that he had a bad game today at all. Actually, I, I think I did say initially that I thought he actually played well yeah, today yeah. But overall. But I agree with you. He is the first target for people, and it's sort of like people have this weird confirmation bias that they kind of twist everything to suit their pre be a pre-planned opinion so I absolutely agree with that and he was not I didn't think by far one of the worst players today I thought he was but as you say play quite well but there's no doubt him and Sanchez together they give the opposition a sniff don't they and what you were saying Milo about Eric Dyer looking and maybe not trusting so much is a factor it all adds up I think then you put into you know into play the intangibles we've talked a lot about 
Eric Dyer's minutes on the pitch this season. I've talked about my increasing fear that Dyer is one of three or four players we have that are approaching a red line in terms of mental and physical fitness. I think increasingly we're seeing that Eric showing the strain. He's made a couple of pretty poor unforced errors, uh, including nearly passing the ball into his own net today. Uh, that was not great. And uh, But it's hard not to feel sympathy for him. And I think generally that mental fatigue is setting in. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it was unforced errors that allowed... Newcastle into this game they weren't yes. really creating great opportunities until um Lloris you know decided to well run into someone and fall over and then and then pass to them and you know uh, does he get an, does he get an assist for the second he must do mustn't he um we've seen both sides of Lloris this week uh you know yes, against Man have. United we'll talk later on um he was our best player. In fact, he was probably our only player who can hold his head up after the game. Um, and it was a super, you know, superb display of shot stopping, which, you know, he's one of the best at in the league. Um, what he's not so good at is you know, distribution, passing. I mean, that's always been the, it's been the case for quite a long time. And, and you know, the other, the other aspects of the game. And, and, and unfortunately, that's what we saw today. And, you know, you're right around Dyer. I mean, Dyer, you know, passed out, you know, passed out of play twice when he was trying to cross the ball to Cess in the first in the first half and um yeah and then managed to kick the ball behind for a corner when he was trying to back pass to uh Lloris in the first half as well he looked very very shaky in possession and as Gareth was saying when we're playing out from the back so much of our play goes through him um that that's a real problem in terms of our build-up play and I do wonder I mean just before you come in on this Gareth and I mean we are essentially about to break apart that first goal we've just started doing that um but just to say one more thing about Dyer I mean you do wonder if he's carrying a knock I mean he got a knock at Old Trafford if I remember he got he was down for a while there I mean you just don't know how you know how fit these players who have played virtually every minute this season are you just we just don't know I would say he's been poor since he came back from the international break so I don't know whether I mean obviously if he hadn't been called up by England then he would have got a week off and maybe that would have you know, maybe that's the rest he needed. But if you think back to the Frankfurt game, it was a it was a heavy pass from Romero to him that he miscontrolled that allowed them to get there first. Mm. I think from memory because the right side wasn't trusted. It's that whole thing again. Just yeah. been shaky, just shaky for a, yeah. about a month now, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, Gareth, let me ask you about that first goal um, and what your thoughts on it were. Well, I thought it was a foul just in real time and seeing it back. I've, I've, I've seen that sort of incident a hundred times where a goalkeeper and a centre forward collides 99 times out of 99 before today the free kick gets gets given it's just an automatic reflex reaction that you see the goalkeeper go down um, and you give the free kick so many people um, including most of you guys on the on the WhatsApp and a couple of other referees who are also Spurs fans that I've chatted to afterwards have, have said otherwise so it clearly wasn't as clear cut as it was, but where 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 I sit in the in the stadium with what I do, I, I get to see all the the VAR replays and looking at it with my two colleagues either side of me, we looked at the replays and looked at each other and thought, well, he's going to give a free kick for that because um, he got to the ball first. Callum Wilson then comes into him. It's an accidental collision, but he's knocked him over. I'd expect that free kick to be given pretty much anywhere else on the on the pitch. So it it amazed me that it that it wasn't given, but. You know, Obviously, there's, there's two sides to that argument. So. Well, I thought the key to it was that actually Callum Wilson stopped moving 
and Hugo ran into him. And I think that surely Callum Wilson's entitled to stand his ground there, isn't he? And if nothing else, he's entitled to make sure that he doesn't get sent flying by Hugo running into him. That's what it kind of looked like to me. I, I didn't see a foul in there at all. I saw a, a poor piece of judgment from Hugo um, and, and, and Callum Wilson was very, very smart with the finish. That, that's what I saw. And I think this is the first time that Steph's Lily White VAR hasn't seen a decision this way this, this <laughs> no, season. So Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, I would have been actually. I would have been a, personally. I would have felt a little bad if they'd have given that goal. I mean, I wouldn't have. I would have loved it. <laughs> yeah, when, when I scrolled through the WhatsApp message and saw that Steph even thought it was fine, I you know, did wonder. That, you know, there's me meant to be providing a service for people that are partially sighted. The charity, at the, the charity for poor performances and VAR ended today. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to take it a step back, he said it's, it was poor judgment by Larice. It was not that it was the second time in half an hour that a ball got played in behind our back four. Because if you remember quite early on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trippier put in a really good diagonal pass, and then Emerson Royale, um, I, he didn't foul Joe Linton, but it was clumsy that they, no. they did go down in the penalty area. This time, I think Hugo had to come out because the ball wasn't going to land in the penalty area. He couldn't, he couldn't have stayed in his area and let it come to him. He had to come out and intervene. And you'd always say the player facing forward is going to be um, in the better position to to try and deal with that one. The defender certainly wasn't going to get there first. So I think he had to get there. And he did get to the Mm. ball first of all. I just thought it was Wilson's momentum that that took him into Lloris. So, yeah, again, I've I've watched back the replays and I'm still equally as staggered that it wasn't given. But say (laughs) enough people who have very credible opinions are saying otherwise. So. I mean, I, Fair enough. I don't think Lloris was in control of the ball at that point. It was past him. And I think that Lloris was looking for the free kick. I think he ran into him and fell over and was, and was looking for the free kick because he knew he didn't have a ball at that point. I got a distinct hint of that myself. He's like, oops, I didn't quite clear this, did I? Yeah, I thought the same. How talked about um, that goal in the in the post-match press conference and was saying anywhere else on the pitch it's not a free kick two players run into each other it's not a free kick yeah I mean rightly or wrongly goalkeepers are slightly protected species yeah I mean okay let's let's look at this second goal again how does that happen I mean about how many times well we've we've seen we've seen exactly the same goal already this year Larissa's is shit at passing that's <laughs> how it happens <laughs> We, we saw exactly the same thing at West Ham earlier in the season. Yeah. I think it was Lloris played the ball out to Perisic and the same thing and doing control it. Then oh. we didn't react from the from the throwing. So in Lloris yeah. playing a bad pass, albeit I think that's where the blame with Hugo ends. And first of all, Sessegnon gets drawn into the ball with, with Almiron, who's very so quick and, and Longley defended incredibly badly. And if that's what... Barcelona yes. fans saw and weren't disappointed that he that, that he no, was just... allowed to leave. I think we're seeing that as well because he just went past him as if he wasn't there. Almiron might he just be a got quick player for but... speed. Yeah, he got done for speed. He was done on the turn. He wasn't able to adjust himself, was he? Uh, so, uh, Longley's reaching out to grab onto him. So if he was successful in that, it's a penalty, isn't it? So and, and he's yeah, well, he's going to get a yellow at least, isn't he, for that? Yeah, but at least a yeah. yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think at that moment, I have to say, of all the players that we are missing right now, and, you know, you look at Decky, obviously, is the obvious one. But, I mean, I don't know about you, chaps, but I'm looking after that first goal goes in, and it's like, you know, we needed a PEH on the field to maybe steady things, maybe drag us back into it. He has that presence. I didn't see anybody with that kind of... I don't know, tugboat mentality. Is that the right thing to say? I don't know. It seemed that we really missed him at that vital time where we needed to, you know, just steady ourselves and remember that we had been in the ascendancy. But, I mean, Pierre was on the pitch on, on Wednesday night and through no particular fault of, of, of his in particular, 
Um, he wasn't able to do anything to galvanise the teams once the went to the game once it went against us and United raised their intensity levels then um, there's been other occasions this year when Pierre's been on the pitch and he's not been able to, to generate a response either so I don't think him being on there per se would have had any psychological impact because there's no evidence that it's had any difference already this season I think this is an interesting point and we we did touch on the kind of confidence of the team and kind of you touched on the mental strength of the team earlier on didn't you Gareth in your in the first question and I thought earlier earlier this season we we were doing quite well you know there was a couple of times where we conceded and we we responded very quickly and there you know there appeared to be that kind of mental strength and spirit there that seems to have dropped off a bit this last um again maybe month or so and I don't know whether that's you know we've talked about fatigue and obviously you know, that can make obviously that makes your your um your thinking your reaction time and all those kind of things more difficult it can be harder to to pull yourself through things yeah maybe you know the team is still too nice i mean that's been a criticism of us for a long time um i i'm not really you know sometimes you, you know the, I, I hate that how can a how can a spursy thing or you know that kind of argument and i don't really believe that there is an inherent characteristic within a club i think it's about the players that are there at any one time and conte has tended to bring in you know physically strong players you know big players uh you know he he's you know quite a demanding character and you know that's following on from you know our previous manager who's also you know very very much like that as well um but it's puzzling because it, it does seem to be a, a long-running long-running issue i know that hypotheticals are tricky at the best of times but i do want to throw this in there as a question for, for both of you and it's my personal theory so i take ownership of it um i think that you know jean pierre ventroni was such a presence in antonio conti's life for so long i have a theory that he's not being around is actually affecting Conte at a moment where he really could do with his counsel more than ever. And that maybe Conte finds himself in a position right now where he doesn't have anyone to help steady him through what is a rocky period in terms of dealing with injuries, dealing with get three games a week, dealing with confidence, dealing with a bad result here and there. Um, you know, maybe Antonio himself is having trouble adapting to this new reality that he's in. And do we think that that might be having any effect on how he's handling games like this, even in-game, how he handled the post-Man uh, United defeat? Do we think there's anything in that? I, I think there is, but as you guys know, I tend to think a lot in intangibles. So I think it's an untestable hypothesis. So I don't know, possibly, but I don't know. And it wouldn't be something that I looked at because I've got no way of knowing whether it's true or not. Yeah, I think I'm probably inclined to agree with that one. I'd say in the grand scheme of things, we had a pretty rocky period around January and, and February time, didn't we? We lost two back-to-back games against Wolves and Southampton and felt like confidence was completely brittle then and you know, the yeah. mentality was an issue um, and things turned around then and I think that's probably my answer generally. But yeah, I, I think yeah, untrusted, I, un, it is an untrusted, uh, it's an untested hypothesis. I mean, I, I think... <laughs> I think in terms of kind of today's game, I, I don't think there was anything intrinsically wrong with the way that um, Conte set the team up. Um, you know, as we said, we were we were playing quite well uh, up until Newcastle scored. Both of Newcastle's goals came from errors from us. Um, that's not the coach's fault. That's the players' fault. And uh, I thought we, you know, certainly at the beginning of the second half, I thought we showed quite a lot of character to come back into the game and uh, and to you know make a game of it and i think what's what's more worrying to me is that the players couldn't sort that out themselves on the pitch and i think you know the game we're going to come on to 
later on, you know, the Man United game is similar. I think you know what I, if I was a coach, and I think Conte's view will be is that the man, the players ought to be able to resolve some of these issues on the pitch, and that doesn't seem to happen. It, it, it seems right. to be you know it has to come to half time and him to deal with something in order to fix what's going wrong. But we were talking about this ourselves off record, and I thought that you were very much of the opinion that because of the automations, that the players didn't uh, didn't feel it was their responsibility. I mean, I agree. I think that I think we should be solving these problems, and I think that we have I think we have the talent and the ability to solve those problems. And I don't think some of these players are stepping up. No, I think you've misunderstood what I was saying, Steph. Um, okay, I think you're talking about players freelancing, and and that you're never going to be able to do that within a Conte setup. Um, I'm talking about players you know, taking responsibility and gra- grabbing a game by the neck, which for Conte would be doing what he's told them to do better. I think we're both saying exactly the same thing then. We're just using different language because that's exactly what I'm looking for for several of our players. But, you know, Conte would say, you know, we've, we've, you know, this is what we've, how we've prepared for this game. And I want you to execute that to the nth degree. And when we're not playing well, I'm sure he would say they're not doing that. So, you know, I think this is quite often why you don't tend to see big tactical changes from Conte, you know, through a game is because he just wants them to do, you know, to execute what they've planned better. And, you know, for whatever reason, you know, at the end of the first half today, we weren't able to do that. And for, you know, 75, 80 minutes against Manchester United, we weren't able to do that. It's fascinating. We're both pretty much saying the same thing, but with different shades of of grey on it. I mean, you know, within the systems that they have on the pitch, I think that some of those players need to be showing a lot more character. Let's look at that moment in the first half after seven, eight minutes where, um, you know, Sonny had that chance. Uh, you know, there's a big chance, right? I mean, the whole, that, that goals change games, bubbly bar, cliche, cliche, big moment, right? Uh, massive moment. A really good ball by Kane. It came in a spell where we were creating quite a few chances from, from deeper positions. Um, Sonny had already taken on about three shots by by that stage. And I just think he got yeah. the execution wrong. He didn't get enough purchase on the ball and he didn't mm. get enough lift on it. And it was quite a simple one for Nick Pope, really. He could have thrown his hat on it. And then Trippier was able to come up and you know, tidy it up. But it's, it's, again, it's another one of those examples that it's very, very easy to see the final score and then to draw conclusions from that and then to work your way back. But actually, if you analyse a game from the first whistle going through and you pick up and, and you remember that we had that great chance at nil-nil, so that, that, that does, we don't lose many games when we score first. And I think had we scored that, it's a, it's a very, very different afternoon and a very different podcast this evening. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I think if he'd got a bit more on it, then it's probably a goal. I think the pace he played it at gave Pope a chance to get his arm up to it and, and get a block. Um, yeah, his chances before then were a bit more pot shots, weren't they? But um, but he was getting into that, positions. That one that he bent, that bender for the top right hand corner though, that was that was a beautiful shot. I mean, it's pretty close. Yeah, I mean, He's... I think the game. I say I don't think I, I know. They say the game today. We say we came. We created better chances on XG. We're on top. It's one point five seven to one point one three to Newcastle. Yeah. Pretty much all of Newcastle's chances, apart from the ones we gifted them, were from outside the area. Um, and you know, as we've said a few times, you know, that's that's our game plan. We're quite happy to kind of um, shield the the front of the box and force teams to shoot from distance. And you know, we we look pretty comfortable with that. Um, I think yeah. we, we, we've probably got. Plenty of chance to talk about that in the next game because that's pretty much what, <laughs> what Manchester United did for 80 minutes. Um, yeah, but yeah. you know, today, um, you know, if it wasn't for, wasn't for our fuck ups, then we win that quite comfortably. And that's, that's the frustration. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you've both made excellent points. I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 Gareth, you're absolutely right. You do have to analyse a game from start from the first minute to the last. You can't just look at a score and see people bashing Emerson Royale because that's what they think they have to do. You have to look at it holistically. And and Milo, uh, absolutely right. I mean, you know, the, the XG was better. We created better chances and Newcastle really didn't create much other than what we gave them. What a charitable and friendly football club we have become recently, I might say. Um I will ask a couple more questions. One, on a wet pitch with Newcastle throwing the tackles in as they were, I mean, was this a match where maybe Conti should have given Hill a run? See what a player with, the, you know, those skill sets can do you know, on a wet surface with, you know, those thunderous Geordies, like trying to take him out. I mean, is that just romanticism uh, after the fact? Or would you have liked to have seen him given a run? If nothing else, to lift the crowd as well. Get the crowd into it. You've got to try every trick at that point, right? I would rather see him than Mora. And Hill's cameo against Frankfurt, I really enjoyed. And I know that you know, he he can be guilty of giving the ball away, but he's got that willingness and hunger at the moment and he and he's creating stuff. And, you know, it's that kind of, that hunger you get from young players that, that, that seems to go after a season or two in a team, doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, he, he's got that in spades. And I think, I think you almost want to harness that, but, but that's not Conte, is it? Conte likes Conte like likes to know what he's going to get from a player, and I, I, I suspect that Hill isn't that. Yeah, I, I would have rather seen him than Mora, and I would have been tempted to start three four three and start him actually, but um, but then I'm you know I'm not Conte. Yeah, I, th- I think he's still seen as too much of a radical option for Conte. I think for whatever reason, um, Lucas is still captain chaos, isn't he? You still felt maybe... But, he, with half, but that's with half the point. Little... He didn't even create any chaos. I mean, you're absolutely right, Gareth, but there was no chaos. He did nothing, he, bless he, him. He seemed to be her. played... I assume when he came on, we were going to go to a 3-4-3 and you were going to see him higher up the pitch on the right-hand side. But right. actually, he just felt like he he took Skip's position almost in the middle, in, in the middle on the right of a midfield three. Um, and again, he's not fit enough yet as well. So you saw some signs from Lucas... You saw some of the things that he's good at doing. He'll go in and he'll he'll win a ball. Um, he'll get there just before someone because he's very quick off the mark. He'll get away from a player on his on his first or second touch, but it, it, it didn't really happen today. I wasn't surprised that he came on before Hill. I think it, no. I think for his own sake, he needs to leave the club in January and, and go on loan and go and, and go and play somewhere because I don't think Conte fancies him and I don't think he's going to give him a, a decent run. I think for his own development and for the you know his long term future at Spurs, he needs to be going playing football somewhere else. I thought you were talking about Mora then. I was agreeing with you. You were talking about Hill. Oh, no. Yeah, so is I. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're both nodding and smiling like, whoa, yeah. And then suddenly it was realised he's not talking about Mora. It's like, oops, um, can I retract I, that? <laughs> I assume maybe Mora in the skip role that Conte's been getting out some of the, the Mourinho back catalogue videos this week and watching that. Cause you remember when you played that kind of front three wonky with Mora in a defensive uh, a defensive forward position. Maybe that's what's happened. <laughs> they, they all love him, don't they? I mean, yeah. I mean, look, again, in an uncharacteristically pessimistic uh, view for me, uh, critis- critical view, I should say, I, I, I think this is something that I wish Antonio Conte could do right now in these moments is take the stadium temperature, take the temperature of the game, which I know he does. He's a professional. He's won loads more than I ever will. But, I'm, you know, I'm a fan, so I'll talk like one. Brian Hill, I think, would have lit something in the stadium 
maybe the stadium coming alive brings the players alive. Just you, you're looking for any connectivity, right? And you just, I don't know. I look at those Newcastle defenders. I just thought some of them were begging to be taken on on a wet pitch. But I think we're all in agreement. So, and and I, I think the other thing is, is that I just with with Mora and yeah, we saw this kind of pre-Decky Spurs in that you know we're a bit one track with Mora and Son in the side, and you know we've been guilty of yes. that with Richie and Son in the side in the front three, and yeah. at least. Brian offers something different. You know, Brian can take a player on, but also yeah. he's got he's got some passing. And I, I really do think of the of the options we've got in the squad, he is the most decky like of the forwards we've got. And and we are missing you know, Mora can't trap a ball and bring someone else into play. And when you're trying to work your way up the pitch, oh, no. I, I do think that's a, that's an asset. Um and yeah. So I I'd like uh, yeah, to see, I know I like completely agree. And I mean, you know, yeah, and I mean he he, he you did say you'd like to see more of Hill because at the speed mm. you were saying that, me cutting you off, it could have sounded like you'd like to see more. No, I've seen enough. More <laughs> I don't want to saddle you with that. No, I know. I know. Um, and, you know, one of the other things about Hill, and we'll leave this alone in a minute, I promise, but, you know, even when he gets knocked over, and he is quite lightweight, that's got to be said. I'd love to see him bulk up a bit. But he bounces up and he goes for it again. And he goes for it again. I just, the, the energy. I mean, sometimes, you know, as you said, Gareth, you know, that chaos ball that we looked, you know, we look from uh, we look to Mora mm. to have chaos ball. That's what I'm trying to say. He ain't producing it. I think Hill's got more chaos ball than Mora. Yes, absolutely. Well, absolutely, I think defend, and defending teams will know less about him, won't they? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, all right. So we've successfully lobbied for Brian Hill to get his shot, and I think quite convincingly, actually, I think it will be a good thing to see. And um, before I go to one positive, one negative, you know, it would be remiss not to ask Gareth uh, for his thoughts on uh, Newcastle's time-wasting. Um, do you think, uh, Gareth, that Nick Pope has replaced Ben Foster in your affections, especially after that yellow, when he continued to dither yeah. rather dangerously yeah. to a second yellow, don't you think? I, don't, I think I'm slightly suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, that I could I could see what was happening, but I'm just a little bit immune to it. Now, you know what's going to happen. Um, the referee's going to keep pointing at his watch, and then he's not going to caution anyone until the 83rd minute, and the goalkeeper almost knows there that in getting a yellow card, that's his licence to continue pissing about for the rest of the game after that, because no referee is going to send someone off for two yellow cards for the time-wasting, but... It was, um, yeah, it was, it was Ben Foster-esque. I mean, the way that he kicked his studs against the post to take that goal kick, which then um, prompted Jared Gillett to come and show him the yellow card. I mean, that was purely performative, wasn't it? It was, I'm going to oh, kick my studs against the post. You're going to give me a yellow card. That's then going to take an extra 30 seconds. Then I'm going to continue doing it because essentially the slate's clean at that point. I mean, in fairness, the incredibly uh, muddy and boggy White Hart Lane pitch must have been caked all over his boots. I mean, it is a joke. It's an absolute joke, isn't it? And and five minutes of, of injury timing? Come on. You're absolutely right. They know they're going to get away with it, and they do. You're right. It's like performative dance. I mean, anyway. uh, yeah, but until you've got, you know, unless you move to a kind of 60-minute game where the clock stops every time play stops, it's going to carry on, isn't it? That's the only way round it, really, is to have shorter games with um, with a clock that when the ball, ball's yeah. in play. And, Maybe and I, have another, I, I have another idea if I could throw it in. I'd like to see them add time on. Like, okay, let's really add it on. Let's add an extra 10 or 15 minutes and see how you like that. 
Yeah, well, the only game Newcastle Make lost this year was at, was at Liverpool. And that's when eight minutes were added on and Liverpool scored in the eighth minute of time. And mm. that's because yeah. they were doing all the sodding around then as well. But look, if it, the ball's, it'll be on the other foot. So if next week at Bournemouth, if, if we're 1-0 up with half an hour to go, I'll expect Hugo to do exactly the same from, from yeah. goal Well, that's and, the point. And we'll yeah. get into that after Man United and Antonio and what he says. We're going to get... I mean, it's, what a great segue. What a, what a shame we have to break up that segue into the Manchester United game with our closing thoughts of one positive and one negative in 30 seconds. But we must. Milo. Positive. Oh, it's a bit of a tough one, actually. Um, I, I suppose the positive is that we did did get over our chunky funk at the end of the first half and come out at the beginning of the second. Uh, you uh, love that, don't you? Yeah. Um, it does sound like a Willy Wonka chocolate bar, doesn't it? You're right. You're absolutely right. Let's have it. Unfortunately, we didn't get the golden ticket this week, did we? Oh, very well played, sir. I like that. Very good. Uh, <laughs> and the negative... <laughs> Larice and, and Dyer had shockers and it cost us the game. Yeah. Um, so, look, for me, the positive is that we played well for the first half hour. I say well without playing exceptionally, but we created enough opp- opportunities that on another day we might have been 2 0 up and could have managed it. The. So the biggest of the many negatives today was that having scored our goal on 54 minutes and you expected that was then going to generate a bit of a siege on their goal, it generated very, very little after that so to go 35 minutes and I think Perisic had one shot which was straight at Pope and Sonny had one that was that was blocked we really didn't create anything and that's not good enough I agree my positive will be uh, Oliver Skip's performance I thought it was really strong really good to see him back and and you know closing in on 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 some good form my word we're going to need him in the next uh, three and a half weeks or so so that was a positive my negative is that it seems to me, and it's another one of my uh, intangibles, but the mental fatigue uh, is really concerning to me as much as the physical. And I, we need to find a way to psychologically get ourselves back on track because we do not look like a side that is either enjoying their football or believing that we are going to win matches once one thing goes against us. This is a problem. We need to we need to sort it out pretty quickly. But I will say in mitigation, just to end this, we should remember we were missing four players today who I think normally you would expect to start. And those four players are very key to the way Antonio Conte plays. So poor performance. Try to offer some context. Um, now we can move on to earlier in the week and another poor performance. Far worse than today's, actually. It was the game at Manchester United. Uh, I Look, I, we've been linking the, the things through the pod already. I mean, where do we start? I mean, you know, I, I think it was probably Man United's most comfortable game of the season. How How did we allow that to happen? I mean, I think it's possibly our worst performance under Conte. Um, I thought that, you know, that we we started, I'd say the first 10, 15 minutes, I thought we played quite well. Man United weren't pressing us during that period. They were, they they played a mid-block to start with. And then after about 10, 15 minutes, they pushed up to a, to a high press. And we really struggled. And United basically closed down all of our passing options out of the back. And that meant that we couldn't get the ball forward to Son and Kane. So we created absolutely fuck all. And... Uh, we were incapable of finding a way through that. And every time under Conte that we faced a team that's been effective in playing a high press, we've had we've had a stinker. And this was a real stinker. Yeah, it, I, again, thought we were pretty good for the first 10, 15 minutes, possibly looked the more likely to, to score. But then um, Ten Hag moved things around a little bit, as, as, as Milo described. 
I mean, to some extent, I think sometimes we look at this purely through prism of, of, of Spurs, but perhaps you've just got to say that, you know what, Man United have got, despite all their difficulties over the years, they've got lots of very, very good players and they may actually have found a coach who's managed to put them into a cohesive system, which was always going to take time to work. I think it was always going to be a bit of a false position, those first two games that they had, but they got stuffed at Brentford and lost at home to Brighton and they, they have looked better since then. So let's just remember that. But yeah, after that, it was. It reminded me of going of Spurs going to Old Trafford in the nineties. It was very much well. If we go there and we only lose two 0 then so be it, and we'll look forward to the to the next game. And that was really how it how it panned out. Um, I don't know whether this is the right right point to say how angry I was to find out we were playing in our away kit before the game, and I don't think my mood ever really got any better as the game progressed from that point. You stand on record. We'll leave it there. <laughs> I think it's probably worth saying that. I was going to say here the big six, but actually the figures I've got here don't include Newcastle and considering they're sitting in fourth at the moment, they they probably deserve to be included in that. But say the traditional big six, so Arsenal, Man City, Man United, Liverpool, Spurs and Chelsea. Spurs and uh, Man U are the only teams out of that who've picked up a point away uh, in away games this season. So Arsenal have only played one and they lost one. That was away at Man United. Man City have only played one, and they've lost one. That was away at Liverpool. Man United have played two. They've drawn against Chelsea, and they lost away to Man City. Liverpool have played two. They've lost both, Arsenal and Man United. Spurs have played three. We've drawn one away at Chelsea, uh, um, and then we've lost at Arsenal and Man United. Um, Chelsea have played um, away, have played none so far. So this also plays into you know something we've discussed before about how we've had a tougher start to the season you know, up until the World Cup than than most of our, you know, top top six rivals. And I think in the second half of the year, considering we played kind of, you know, three of those five tough games and we would have played Man City already if it wasn't for, um, for you know, for that being abandoned because of the um, the Queen dying. Uh, you know, it does. It, it you might see this even up a bit in the second half of the season. It, 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 it's um, maybe not quite as bad as it as it as it appears. No, and I mean, I think this is a, a good moment before we continue to break down the Manchester United performance. Um, it is a good point to take uh, a breath, look at the table, realize as 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 poor as this week has been, we are still third. <laughs> you know, we we still can stay third. You know as we go into the, the the world cup break so you're you're absolutely right that there, there should be some um mitigation of the circumstances which have led us to where we are and i think it's very important we all remember that oh the mischief that's going on in this studio tonight you could not believe but let's let's <laughs> get back on track let's talk uh, about something that did happen at manchester united we've been talking about it on the pod for some weeks um, it was the deployment of the 352 system. I think the feeling amongst us is that it's a system that was always going to end up being deployed in this mini season before the Qatar World Cup, simply because of injuries uh, and schedule was going to force it upon us. Um, I know that we all have some theories on that shape and on that system uh, and why it seemed to work in some games. And it certainly has not seemed to work in others. Uh, I'm now going to hand the uh, the mic over to the man who's licking his lips in anticipation of mooning me at the uh, end of this broadcast. Uh, oh, no, uh, actually talking about 352. Um, Milo, kick us off. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, in this game, yeah, as I was just saying, you know, Man United were closing us down and they were man on man against us in, you know, certainly in our half, so we couldn't find an easy ball out. Um, I think 
Basuma at the base of midfield was having. I mean, it's been it's been the case actually since he's joined us really, and when his first touches felt a bit heavy, um, and yeah, he hasn't been able to you know spin and and, and pass the ball out, and, and and it means that pressure keeps coming on us. I do think that our squad has been built for three four three. You know, if you look at our forward options, that lends, you know, leans towards that. Um, and certainly the signings we made in the summer, um, we don't have, I think if we were looking to play, you know, if three five two was something that Conte had in mind, I think we probably would have signed another central midfielder. And certainly I think to play that system regularly, you'd want to see um, a deep playmaker who could sit behind um, the others and, and be able to pick the, the ball up and play a first time pass. Um, and we don't really have that, and I think Basuma. That's the way I, I vis- the way I see it is that um, Skip and Hoybier are you know within the system of the same player, and they can cover each other. And uh, Basuma and Bentica are the same player and can play for each other. Um, and I think that's probably um, what what the plan was. And if we were if we had a deep a deep play playmaker and either of the other two were playing you know either of the other four options were playing in front of them i think would be fine um but i don't think it plays to basuma's strengths and at, at brighton he was um he was a, a principally a ball carrier and and had a lot more license to get forward and uh, you know i think he I, I think he's struggling to adapt to conte's system but i also think that we're seeing him in a position that doesn't necessarily play to his strengths and that probably doesn't help him yeah, so I think a couple of things. Three, five, two, and three, four, three feel like they're probably cousins, but there's so many nuances uh, and differences between them. And when you've got a manager, a coach like Conte, who wants to play with those alter motions, being in exactly the right position at exactly the right time is is absolutely crucial. And just being five or ten yards further apart than someone is going to make a difference mm-hmm. I think aligned to that as well and I think Conte's hinted at this in his in his post-match press conference tonight he's just got no time to work with players on, on shape it's probably one day recovery it's one day prep and then it's then it's then it's the game I mean we're fortunate I guess that we've got we're, we're playing home home Sunday Wednesday so it could be a lot worse if we were at Newcastle and then going to Lisbon on Wednesday which is feasible um, that would give us even less time but I yeah I just don't think there's enough time to be trying to do any major tactical work on different systems when you've got such little time and the, it's playing three five two, not because of any grand plan it's out of necessity because of the players that are available to him yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, it's been forced on him. He was clearly reluctant to do it. He held off, you know, a long time, didn't he, under quite considerable pressure to switch to that formation. Um, and it's a shortage of forwards um, that, that's forced it on him. And I, I think that two games a week is is an interesting thing because obviously it's something he's struggled with elsewhere in the past. If you, you know, if you look at his European record, um, it's not great. And he, I think the way he sets teams up is a what you know, requires a lot of preparation it requires a lot of training and um you know he's not able to prioritize games when they're coming through so thick and fast you know he's getting probably a day's training you know maybe two days training with the team a week at the moment by the time you've done recovery and everything else it's Mm. you know recovery and traveling it's not a lot not a lot of time to work with them is it yeah. No, I mean it's it's an enormous factor. I mean it is an enormous factor and is always going to be part of that um uh, f- uh chunky funky slog that we were talking about uh, in the intro. I mean it's it's part of it's it it really does feel like we're in some sort of like one of those black and white World War 1 documentaries. I don't wish to disparage or or make light of the the horrors of a World War 1 and I I hope it doesn't come across like that. But you know what I mean when you see the black and white films of 
you know, trudging through the muddy trenches. It really feels like metaphorically that's what we're in the middle of. We're in the middle of a, of a trench trudge. I mean, I, I'm I'm not as erudite as you, Steph. I mean, I, I in my notes I'd said that it's an attritional kind of first half of the season up until the World Cup, and which obviously doesn't have. I think the, that's very erudite. It doesn't have the. I think you cheat uh, yeah, yourself. It doesn't have the elegance of uh, chunky, funky sludge, does it? But I mean, you know, that's where we are. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> maybe not quite as colourful, but I think it's very erudite for sure. I think you're absolutely right. It is attritional. You're absolutely right. This is an attritional mini season we're in the middle of, and we're slogging it right now. We really are. I mean, and to a point that you made actually earlier, um, you know, of the two systems, he must be looking, and 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 you know, you're you're seeing well, who have we got the most players I can get away with in a system, and he patently doesn't feel with Lucas not fully fit that he can make 343 work with this squad right now so 352 is almost def- double default for him so i wonder if that's an issue i wonder if the players feel that and you know they're like oh, oh christ he doesn't really believe in this system so yeah. we're not really sure if we do i wonder if that's a factor i don't know because it was such an anemic performance at old trafford it was really terrible yeah so without, without wanting to sound proper football man I just thought there were some real intangibles that were missing. So if you look at United's first goal, it's well, it's not a 50-50, but it's probably a 40-60 against Son, who just makes no effort whatsoever uh, to stop Martinez getting to the ball. And it's his header that goes forward, and within two passes, United are in and, and score a goal. And it just felt like that was happening all over. I think you know our, our good friend uh, Potch said a number of years ago that the formation doesn't really matter. It's about attitude and intensity on the on the pitch. And I don't think it would have mattered whether we played 8-2-0, or or... 10 0 on Wednesday night. I think with that lack of intensity and the, the sort of lack of urgency that we saw and that mental brittleness that really mm. came out once United got on the front foot, we were always oh, going to lose that game. I think it's a I think it's a fascinating point. Um, you know, is there a formation that he can play that will energize the players enough to play? I mean, is that a factor? Really? I think it is. I mean, I think attitude is, but I wonder if they don't believe as much in the formation because the manager doesn't. Does it affect performance? I mean, they must. They'll be fully aware that they're you know, after after Gareth just said about you know, proper football manisms um, to do a red nap. You know, we're down to the bare bones. Um, you know, you looked at the bench today, and there's not a lot there, is there? And I think that probably is going to have an impact. You know, particularly if you're absolutely knackered after playing, you know, kind of two games a week for God knows how long, and then you look at the bench and think, well, I'm probably not going to get, I'm probably not going to get, get a rest. Um, I mean, hopefully, um, you know, Richarlison said that he was going to be out for two weeks, which means that maybe he's back for Bournemouth. Um, that would be a godsend. Conte in the past has been. You know, publicly pessimistic about players coming back. So maybe him saying that Decky's out until after the World Cup is um, is not not true, and we see him beforehand because we really miss him. And yeah, so I think that's you know kind of what I'm clinging on to. I mean, you know, Richie's um, uh, energy today would have been a real boost. I think if we, you know, you know, he obviously can't hold on to the ball, and you know, as well as Decky does, and. You know, we're a worse team when with him, Son and Kane as a front three. But I think his energy today would have been a real boost and um and I think he would have enjoyed playing against Newcastle. Mm. I think yeah, he would have pulled Newcastle's back and 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 
and United as well. He would have pulled defences into directions they didn't perhaps want to go into, which would have then freed up space for, for others, if, if nothing else. This is a central problem that I've been discussing with, with, with other friends of mine in the last, is that there just isn't that much movement when these midfielders are looking around and ahead. There's either either to their left and right or straight ahead. The movement is just not as dynamic as it is when you have uh, a Richarlison or obviously a Decky. I mean, in the Man United game, I don't think they had much time to think. I think uh, Man United did a really, really good job of um, having a man yeah, on they... you know, every available pass. And you know, basically, Tuchel has set a blueprint here. Yeah, that he he has Conte's number. He, he had Conte's number. And if you want to beat us, if you want to uh, make the life, life difficult for us, just you know, it's there. Just you know, if you, if you've got a team who are capable of playing that, then we're going to struggle to play against you. Um, and I don't think there is a tactical. I don't think there's a formation change we can do that makes that changes that. I think it. We we need different players. We need better fullbacks. We need uh, a midfielder who's better on the ball. Um, you know, and we and you know, and and that's with everyone fit as well. <laughs> I'm looking at the notes. the The question that we've put in them is, what are the solutions? I, I I'm going to kick this off and and possibly join Gareth in in you know in, in football man uh, landing um, territory and say that for me for the next month the solution is pretty much solely about how much Antonio Conte can revive and energize the players to do the jobs that they have that they trained all summer for that they know they're being asked to do that we may not have the time to work on the pitch with them too much between these games but everyone knows what's expected. And I think this that really the biggest factor in these coming weeks is going to be how much he can lift the team and inspire the senior professionals around him to really take it on and really do their job. I mean, that seems to me to be the short-term solution. So when I wrote that question, I was thinking more about the issues that Man United pose us and, and that's not going to, we're not going to come up against that in, um, in the next few weeks, I mean, Liverpool don't press as high as they do as they used to. Leeds could do, but I mean, we've had a lot of joy with Leeds kind of half pressing us and not being particularly effective. So I think, I think we've got a nicer run of fixtures now, and they're going to suit us more. And I think we'll see our, our results pick up a bit as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, just to reframe that sort of the the, the question that you wrote a little bit to to form fit uh, pretty much everything that's going on as we've been discussing it's as much about um, maybe not so much Man United albeit uh, that was as you pointed out Gareth you know something we we let happen especially with the first goal Um, you know how do we stop making mistakes that lead to us losing or not winning football matches and I, I, you know, how does what's the solution to that? Because right now it is a it is an issue. We're making a lot of mistakes. I, th- I think it's it's rest and getting players back. So I think you know when we talk about it being attritional, I think it's likely to be like that until the World Cup, and and for the players that go to the World Cup, probably immediately afterwards as well. Um, but you know maybe you know maybe we'll see other teams um, start making more mistakes. I mean, one of the theories I've heard is that. Conte and Klopp and you know make of this what you will um are trying to time their team's fitness so they hit peak form post world cup in the new year and that they're playing kind of less you know because the football's been a bit more conservative is that's in mind so they're trying to conserve energy for for when it matters and you know if that's true 
then you might find teams that are having you know playing um kind of you know more expressive football at the moment you might see those teams crash in the second half of the season uh, you know make of that what you will and i think you know we, we can't really judge that until april you know march april next year really can we no, but I think it's a I think it's a very fair comment. It's I think it's one we've made amongst ourselves several times, uh, and it does go back to the fact that this is uh, the most bizarre of seasons. It's a double season in a way, two mini seasons with a with a bizarre uh, World Cup in the middle. And yes, no, I think it has to be a factor. I mean, it has to be. Um, but I would like to see Antonio Conte now um, as a director, if you would. Let's have a little bit of a Quentin Tarantino to this, as opposed to a Tarkovsky. Like, you know, well, trudging through it. We all, we all shoot ourselves in a where we all shoot each, shoot each other in a warehouse. Is that what? You... There you go. We just come in. I want a bit more Reservoir Dogs than uh, than shall we say Stalker or Solaris, which uh, may not be the most uh, easiest of uh, metaphors to, to get a grip of. But I know what I'm talking well, about. Even you know what, Mister Harvey now. White in the team? Do you? That could be the solution. Mister Harvey <laughs> White. I like it. Mister White. Mister White. Mister Hill. I like it. We see we're on to something. That could be good, couldn't it? Maybe that's sure. as, maybe that's as, go on. I was going to say, I'm sure there's a few players who've wanted to cut their ear after, off after Hoybier has been bawling at them sometime this season. Excellent. So what we're actually saying is somehow in this muddled uh, path that I'm dragging us down, the solution is that we just need to, to go a bit more reservoir dogs here in the next few weeks, starting on Wednesday with Sporting Lisbon. We need we need a, a few more of the misters and a, a little less sort of like wandering around scratching our heads, right? Do you know, it's the 30th anniversary of that being released this week. Is it really? That makes you feel old, doesn't it? <laughs> it makes you feel old, but it also makes me appreciate how much on this pod we managed to stumble into these metaphors that suddenly make such glorious sense. <laughs> That's phenomenal. I think that that's as good a place, really, as we can end this pod, isn't it? On, on you know, believing that on the 30th anniversary of Quentin Tarantino's uh, debut film, Reservoir yeah. Dogs, that we need a bit more Reservoir Dogs out of our Tottenham Hotspur football Well, there club. you go. Well, you have got Mr. White in the middle of midfield and you've got Basuma to the left of him and Bentan Kerr to the right. I like it. I like Mr. Kane. Mr. Kane. I think Mr. <laughs> Kane could have been in Reservoir Dogs, couldn't he? No, I like it. Very good. Ah, oh, well. I don't know, chaps. Seems like a good place to end, don't you think? Yep, absolutely. Very good. We always end this pod with some sort of optimistic note, so you can look forward to Sporting Lisbon and Bournemouth being absolute bloodbaths as we take them both apart in a Reservoir Dogs type stomping or something like that. Uh, thanks, chaps. <laughs> thanks, I see, I see Milo wincing at the thought of that. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how we ended there, but I did like it. Um, Thanks again, chaps. And look, we will be back to discuss um, those games against Sporting Lisbon and Bournemouth next week. If you like our pod, we'd be really grateful if you could share it on social media. It helps us pick up new listeners and grow. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the regulars for joining us, as you always do. Uh, Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next week.